Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Eric Heberlig. Uh, doctor, go ahead and explain who you are and what you do. I'm a professor of political science and public administration at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. I study Congress, uh, campaign finance, American elections in general. So I'm happy to be with you. Appreciate it. Um, as I was saying earlier, I'm trying to find somebody that have on that's got your expertise that they can talk about the way things should be. Um, maybe even the ways we can reform things to make them better and, and work the way that you know, I think the, the founding fathers envisioned them to be working. Because um, clearly that's just not the way things are at the moment. <clears throat> so I guess the first question is, there's a lot of talk about getting rid of the electoral college. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on why the electoral college is important? Sure. Um, the Electoral College, in some ways, encapsulates the founders' view of dividing power in how we select uh, government officials. Um, it was created to give the states a role in choosing the president. So state votes are allocated based on their representation in the House, plus the two senators. Um, and the original vision was that local voters or the state legislators would select the electors from each state and the electors would get together and basically nominate their own candidates um, and debate one another, persuade one another, but they would make up their own minds. They would vote independently based on their assessment of the merits of the candidates that, that they nominated. Um, and we'd count up all the electoral college votes and from across all the, the states and Presumably, there would not be anyone who got a majority of the Electoral College votes nationally because they did not expect many people to have a national reputation at that point in time. Remember, we don't have TV, we don't have radio, we don't have blogs. <laughs> um, um, so then the top three candidates would be sent to Congress and the House of Representatives would choose among the top three candidates one vote per state and the Senate would choose the vice president, uh, one vote per state. So essentially you'd have two levels of elite review of the candidates, one local elite and one national elite um, to choose the president. So the founders' idea was that um, they had watched past democracies, which had all failed. Um, so this was their way of saying, we're not gonna put this in the hands of ordinary voters who are too self-interested too easy, easily manipulated by politicians. We'll put it in the hands of people with government experience who know what the job entails, who have experience dealing with potential presidential candidates, so would know how reliable they are, know how well they've done in, in public service, um, would know who they trust. So they would be nominating and voting for, for those people based on their actual knowledge of the candidates and their character, rather than relying on you know, what we mostly rely on, which right. is television commercials and what the media says about them and what crazy uncle Louie says about them. <laughs> um, so things have clearly changed from their envisionment to what we have now. I mean, now it's a matter of if, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, the state 
effectively decides by majority of the votes gets the electoral credits and then the winner gets yes. 270 is it <clears throat> yeah so so in all states except two we have winner take all systems so the state counts up the popular vote and whichever candidate gets the most votes from voters like you and me gets all of that state's electoral college votes so that is completely opposite of what the founders wanted the Electoral College to do. They did not want the president to be chosen based on on the popular vote. Today, our winner-take-all system does exactly that. Um, but my experiences in talking to students and, and, and the public about this, um, even if they don't really like the way the Electoral College works today, they prefer a system where they get to vote for the president rather than relying on elites to, to make the decision for them. Uh, isn't there something that can be done? Uh, I mean, it's, they have a basically another election after the election. That's where they cast the electoral votes. Is there a possibility of a, I guess somebody casting a vote opposite of what the winner take all receives? Uh, uh, until recently, <laughs> uh, the Supreme Court had a decision this summer uh, on, on exactly this question. And the Supreme Court decided that states can bind the electors uh, to vote the way the popular vote is in, in their state. Uh, up until this summer, there was question about it. And, you know, if you look at the history books, uh, in, including in 2016, there have been electors who have voted the way they want to, rather than following the, the vote in their state. Uh, we call them faithless electors. Right. Um, I, I think that's perfectly consistent with what the founders wanted. Um, in fact, that's the way Alexander Hamilton described the way the Electoral College was supposed to work in the Federalist Papers, and that's the version I, I talked about earlier in the, in the, in the podcast. Um, but many states like my home state of North Carolina, have state laws that basically tell electors, you have to vote the way the popular vote has gone. If you don't, we're going to fine you um, and kick you out as an elector and replace you with someone who will do what they're told. <laughs> and, the, and the Supreme Court this summer basically uh, said, yeah, that's perfectly fine. Uh, if the state legislature wants to, to do that to assure that the voters have their presidential votes cast the way they want state legislatures can do that. I think there's, there's, I think there would be a good thing to have kind of a combination of the two. I don't know if that's even feasible, but I mean, I understand why you want to allow the people to have uh, our elected officials to have the, the last say in who they put it, the head of the government, but at the same time, the rampant corruption and, the tribalism that goes on in our politics, I think is one of the reasons why we can't have that, you know, and I think it's, it's kind of clear with over the last, we'll call it four or five years or so where you're, you're clearly seeing people doing what they want to do, regardless of what popular opinion is, regardless of what past precedent is. And there's a lot of interesting turns of events, I guess. <laughs> um, and from my perspective, there's, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on. What, do you think we could do as a civilized society to improve and kind of, I guess, reduce what we have going on right now? 
But so you, you mentioned the word tribalism. Um, the founders did not want political parties. Um, they had seen from past democracies how political parties often put the interest of the party ahead of the interest of the country. And one of the purposes of the Electoral College was to try to create mechanisms to elect officials who had the ability to put the national interest ahead of their own personal interest. Um, so what do we do about that today? Well, that's really a challenge because um, the system the founders set up um, is skewed towards two political parties um, in a way that you know, other democracies aren't, such as the ones in Europe have multiple political parties. Our, our system promotes two political parties, and that you know, almost automatically means you get these kind of team mentalities. And you know, where we are today, rather than a generation or two ago in the United States, is that people have really sorted themselves into political parties based on their political ideology. And those ideologies are closely aligned with various social groupings, gender, race, um, geography, you know, whether you live in a rural or, right. or urban area. Um, so all those attitudes and personal relationships tend to be mutually reinforcing um, and that makes it harder for us to even come in contact with people that we disagree with to understand that people may have different opinions, but they're not immoral. They're not treasonous. They're just people with, with different opinions. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that's a real challenge for our system at the moment. And I, I think the, um, you know, frankly, the most likely way that it's going to happen uh, is for some new political issue to come on, on the stage that kind of divides people in a different way than the parties are currently dividing people that'll force people to kind of rethink their alignment with the political parties and kind of reshuffle the deck. Do you, do you think that the current election, specifically the, the current president is kind of doing that because I'm, I'm, I've kind of reserved myself to the ideology that there's, Republicans, Democrats, and then there's supporters or really supporters for Trump and people that don't support Trump. Um, and it seems that there's a growing group of Republicans that don't want to support the current president. So do you think this is one of those situations that could kind of really shake things up? In, in 2016, I thought that was a very distinct possibility, um, given that Trump was not t in terribly close alignment with the traditional Republican platform or the traditional uh, conservative uh, positions. Um, I've been surprised to the extent that Republican office holders and Republican voters have, you know, followed in, in line with, with the, the Trump agenda. Uh, we are seeing in this election a number of, of former Republican leaders who are speaking out about, you know, supporting Biden. Um, but really in the polls to this point, we're not seeing a, a large mass following right. for, for those Republicans. We're seeing, um, you know, support for Trump from Republican voters at very similar levels to what we typically see. Um, so, you know, once the votes comes in and, and we see exit polls, um, you know, it may be that you know, all the current Republican voters who are undecided are going to shift to Biden. So we'll see a, a bigger gap than usual. But right now I'm, I'm not seeing that. 
Um, now, now, having said that, if, if Trump loses substantially and we have a significant um, after election come the Jesus meeting of the Republican <laughs> Party, you know, um, where they try to figure out where to go from here, um, I, I do think you're going to have um, a significant, um, you know, contentious discussion among, you know, the, the populist nationalist people who, who love Trump and, and some of the people who publicly opposed him uh, this time and some other people who uh, say they opposed him but just never did publicly, right. um, you know, as, as they try to sort through where they go next. There's a, a couple things that I've heard recently on, on like 538 does a good coverage. One, I'm, I'm not a big fan of polls just because they can be skewed easily. They're my understanding of them is, is not as scientific as perhaps yours or the people that really delve into the statistics of it all. But, you know, in 2016, it was pretty heavy on the polls for a Hillary victory and she ended up losing. And I think that's because people took what the polls were saying and kind of figured, well, they don't need my vote because, you know, the, the polls are, are so lopsided. And clearly that polls were not correct on that. Um, Given how badly the current president is, in my opinion, being as divisive as anybody I've ever seen in that office, um, do you foresee maybe a a factioning of the Republican Party and even possibly the Democratic Party given off of what's going on? Oh, I I definitely think so. I I think there's going to be the kind of the, the true believer conservatives who are going to come back and say, you know, this is what the party has always stood for. And that wasn't what Trump stood for. And we were punished for, you know, trading in our, our principles, you know, for political expediency. And, you know, then you're going to have, have others. And you have to remember here that over the past four years, it's not just been, um, you know, Republican primary voters who voted for Trump twice, but a number of the local Republican offices, state Republican offices, are now held by Trump supporters. Right. So it's it's not really a matter of just people deciding, oh, you know, we want to go in a different direction. Um, you know, people who um, are, you know, true blood Trump supporters are now in those positions, which makes it harder for um, objectors to um, change the direction of, of the party. Um but, but, but yes, there, there are clearly factions of the Republican Party. There are clearly factions of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, one reason we're seeing Biden emphasize, you know, his, his personality, his character is not just to contrast in a way that he thinks is favorable with Trump's, um, you know, uh, erratic and, and forceful personality, that's but because that's, that, that's what unites the Democrats. I mean, you have the, the Bernie Sanders, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wing of, of the party pushing, you know, more progressive policy ideas than the Democratic Party has traditionally favored. And you have the Biden um, establishment wing of the party. Um, he's not campaigning on, on policy as much because then that exposes those ideological gaps within the party. Right. They all can agree that Donald Trump is is a nasty human being and a threat to democracy, so that's what they're going to talk about. 
I, I was expecting kind of a shift or at least maybe a little bit of a fraction after the 2016 uh, election and everything that went down between Hillary and Bernie. Um, you know, the Democratic Party coming to come out and saying, yeah, we did that and shame on us, but we're not going to do anything about it. Um, so I, I kind of didn't, I wasn't surprised to see Trump win because I, I think that was just a very unique election, the fact that you had two people that weren't really wanted, perhaps, um, and all the other side nonsense that went on. So it, it, it really, I think, gave people really bad taste in their mouth about trying to vote and picking the lesser two evils. Um, the change and, and shift, or right, let me shift gears a little bit. In my opinion, one of the bigger problems is term limits, or two of the bigger problems are term limits or lack thereof, and the way that we go about funding our politicians. What do you foresee being the best way to approach and, and maybe have that cataclysmic shift to change things for the better? Um, well, on, on campaign finance, that's something I, I study. Um, so remind me if I talk about that and don't come back to term limits. Um, but, but really, we're, we're seeing two significant shifts on, on the money front. Uh, one is one that probably many of your listeners are aware of, which is the increased role of what we call super PACs, um, uh, groups that can raise unlimited amounts of money, spend unlimited amounts of money. Um, so since the Citizens United Supreme Court decision in, in 2010, we've seen a, a tremendous increase in, in that amount of spending. Um, the, the original concern was that uh, corporations were just going to unload their treasuries on uh, elections, uh, trying to influence outcomes. Uh, we've seen that that largely has not happened. Um, most of the money to super PACs is, is just coming from wealthy individuals. So, you know, they're largely employed by corporations, but it's, it's their personal money that they're spending to promote their own personal ideological causes not really corporations, uh, at least directly trying to um, buy off politicians. But the other main source of, of uh, money that's really transforming the system over the last couple of years is, is individ small individual donors, that, that the web, the internet, um, sites like uh, ActBlue, oh, uh, what's the Republican version? Anyway, there's now a Republican version, um, has just allowed lots and lots of money to, to flow to candidates. Um, and, and so in, in some ways, um, they're, they're both pushing lots of money into politics, but with kind of very different, quote unquote, democratic implications. Uh, you know, the, the, the small individual donors are, I think, the way most people would like to see campaign finance work. You know, it's individual donors, you know, kind of reinforcing their votes in small amounts to say, hey, these are the candidates we like and we want to help them get their message out, where the, the super PAC approach is the, the large donors, the, the, the very wealthy, uh, being able to um, kind of offset the one vote um, or one person, one vote model of democracy by the fact that they can use their money to speak to lots of people right. and influence lots of voters. So on, on, on term limits, um, I, I certainly see why P 
people are, are frustrated and would, would see that as a solution. I think the assumption people have is that the the new people would be better than the old people. <laughs> and uh, and that's what a lot of people were, were thinking in terms of Trump. You know, oh, we'll, we'll give him a turn. You know, it, it can't be any worse. Um, you know, and now we're deciding whether the change he promised was really the change that we were, were looking for. Right. Um, and, and what we've seen uh, over the past um, decade or so is that in, in Congress, if we think one of the key problems of Congress, which and I think polarization is one of the key problems in Congress, is that the new people, the people who are replacing the old people, are much more polarized than the people they're replacing. So we're, we're replacing old people who we said didn't compromise enough with people who compromise even less, you know, who, who are good at, you know, rousing the public, um, you know, uh, appealing to their grievances, but aren't terribly interested in, in solving any problems. Um, you know, so they make us feel good in election campaigns because they're speaking to problems that we agree with them that they exist, but we're not demanding that they provide any solutions. So if they can get elected without providing any solutions, that's what they're going to do. And then they get to D.C. and, uh, oh, surprise, surprise, can't work out any solutions because they never had to promise any. Right. Um, so the, the, the people that have long-term experience in Congress, we, we've documented they're most successful in passing legislation. So the risk of term limits is that we get rid of the people with the experience and uh, an ability to compromise and get things done and replace them with people with neither of those skill sets and end up actually more frustrated than we were before. Now, that's that's not to say that everybody who's there is competent or worthy of, of re-election, because <laughs> clearly that's not the case. But, you know, I, I think on average we take a risk in assuming that the people who are there are total idiots and incompetent, and the people who would replace them um, aren't. I, I, I think there's a balance there that I, I would prefer to see happen. Sure. I, I mean, ideally, yeah, I, I mean, you have people that are in politics or in Congress, in the House, um, in the Senate, whichever place they're sitting, and they're there for 30, 40, 50 years. And while they learn the ins and outs of, of how to get a deal done, they also seem to be a little more rigid in sticking to that party ideology I personally would love to see candidates that generally want to go in there for a handful of years, do good by the seat and then leave. And, you know, kind of going back to where you're having the new blood go in, so to speak, that's a little less compromising. You know, we've always been told, you know, two things you can't talk about at Christmas dinner are politics <laughs> and religion. And I kind of think that because we don't talk about things, and haven't, and it's been such a taboo thing that we now have, you know, the identity politics where you talk about something, you bring up a topic, and people are personally offended that you're disagreeing with that particular political item, whatever it is. You know, we've decreased our ability to have a civil conversation and just talk about things and, and rationally hash out our differences. We now have people that are in high-ranking office that rather than give an argument, a competent, well-stated, well-thought-out argument 
for or against something, the immediate response is you're stupid, you're an idiot, you know, whatever term you want to throw out. But it's more of a defensive thing with no substance. There's also a lot of, you know, people that are out screaming about a problem, whatever the problem is, but not willing to negotiate or entertain any viable solution. How do you think we can, I guess, you know, for me as a father with with two kids that are teenagers and trying to get them to understand how to properly discuss things and and, and debate, think critically, how can we better prepare our youth to, to change where we are at right now? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think the short answer is to practice it. <laughs> that we have to have the conversations within our families with, with others in our family that we um, might disagree with on, on some things. Um, we, we have to, I'd say, encourage your kids to be involved in clubs at school um, where they're engaging, particularly making decisions with, with other students. Um, you know, um, clubs outside of school, like scouts or, or, or things like that, where they, they practice leadership skills and working with, with other people. Um, I, I think those type of experiences are, are critical. Uh, and, and, and for adults to join organizations, civic organizations, uh, charitable organizations, uh, again, participate in, in their discussions and decision-making. Because um, I, I think the value in those experiences is that you, you learn that um, people have different perspectives on, on issues that you, you can have similar goals, um, which are, are, are good, uh, but different ways to get there. And, and that's okay. And it's reasonable for people to bring different pieces of evidence to bear and, uh, and engaging in those type of organizations and the, their decision-making processes. Um, you know, we, we learn how to have those civil conversations. We, we learn how to have, um, you know, group decisions we learn that, well, sometimes we can persuade others. Sometimes they can persuade us. Sometimes we do our best and um, and we take a vote and our position loses. And that's okay because they're still decent people and we can still contribute uh, constructively to the outcome. And sometimes our position wins and somebody else's loses, but they still pitch in to help. Um, and therefore, we, we kind of learn how the governing process works, you know, within our own context. And I think that gives us a little more um, understanding <laughs> of, you know, what public officials have to go through. Because when, when we're doing it, you know, in our clubs and organizations, you know, we don't have talk radio uh, <laughs> hectoring us. We don't have uh, a constituent meetings where people are, you know, giving us a hard time and, and haranguing us. So, you know, if, if we have trouble and, you know, can't sleep at night based on the tough decisions that we make without people harassing us, um, you know, maybe we'll, we'll give a little leeway to the public officials who, you know, put themselves in a situation where they do have to make decisions that will make people unhappy and have to, you know, bear the consequences of that. I, I think that you kind of hit a couple of good points. And one of is, you know, people have to learn that, their idea might not always be the best idea. Um, other people, you know, everybody has their own perspective that, that's formed by you know, their life experience and, and what they see. Um, the idea that we have 
people who assume that they're an expert, whether they are or aren't, you know, speaking about the media, every talking head has, you know, they're the right uh, and correct just a voice for whatever the particular topic is. Um, how can we change the media to actually, I guess, report more of the news? I mean, I understand that it's a, if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing. And it's, there, there's a different agenda, so to speak to it for, for getting viewership. But I believe that people that are in high positions have a responsibility to be, to speak honestly. And we don't have that anymore. We don't have anybody that, that really gives the truth without some sort of twist or, or, you know, blatant lie. So I'm trying to, I guess, see, what you think we can do about mitigating a lot of the misinformation and disinformation that's out there? I, I think uh, the key for, for a listener is when you're hear, hearing something, hearing someone say something on, on the media, um, is, is to think through what their motives are. Why, why are they telling you this? Um, you know, what, what perhaps is in it for them in making you agree with, with what they have to say? Um, and that'll help you you know, evaluate how much you should give credence to, to what they've just told you. Um, I, I, one of the challenges in thinking about the media is it's such a broad term and covers so many different things now um, that you, you do have, um, you know, what we traditionally thought of as the media, you know, broadcast networks, the, the major papers, that still, I think, mostly try to adhere to the traditional professional norms of, of check it out. Um, you know, they, they strictly report, you know, um, that is just tell us what happened less than they used to. They're certainly more interpretive, trying to put things in context than they used to, um, which leads for more opportunity for, for bias than, than used to. Uh, but I think for the most part, you know, they're trying to appeal to a broad audience and have the most incentive to, um, you know, at least be understanding of, of both sides. Um, we, we do have media outlets now that are more narrow casting, you know, trying to find a particular market among people who have certain ideological beliefs. So as, as long as they keep those people coming back, you know, that's their business model of, creating that intense and, and loyal set of, of, of viewers. Um, so their people are going to go there to have their views reinforced, not necessarily to get the full story or, um, uh, you know, to hear what the other side <laughs> might think about it. And then, of course, you have the um, proliferation of, of social media, um, which is, you know, uh, allowing people to target even more narrow in a more narrow casted way. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the challenge is that even if we were able to, well, let me give this example. Um, once in class, I had a student who asked a, a very similar question, you know, where, where can I go to get objective news? And I said, well, one of the, um, one approach is the approach of kind of the, the PBS news hour um, where they, you know, give the general overview of the news in the first 10 minutes, but then have panels focused on particular issues after that, where they have both sides talk, you know, and they really try to delve into that in, in a lot of detail. And the student raised his hand and he said, oh, I watched that once. 
it was really boring. It was like going to class. <laughs> um, so, so that, that is there, but you know, how are their ratings? Their ratings are, are lousy because people don't want to go to class. It's dry. You know? They, 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 you know, want to go to a more entertaining format, which is typically more lively, more argumentative. Um, but those typically aren't aimed at, you know, delving into the, the policy details. The nuances. I think with with media nowadays, I mean, depending upon what channel you tune into, you have a very good idea of what slant is going to be provided to whatever the facts are. Um, I think there's also less editorial and more opinion going on than should be for certain things, for a lot of things, especially, you know, our, our politics. I mean, we have people that thrive on, on spreading lies, and, and I believe the saying is um, lies spread faster than the truth because it's easier to, to believe. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, I guess, the political debates that we have? I think it's more of a, a joke and a sideshow, do you think we can ever get back to a more reasonable debate format for our political candidates since it's so hard to get, you know, unbiased information? Yeah. The, the challenge in debates is even if you have good questions, it relies on the candidates to answer them and they're very skilled at not answering them at, at shifting to the things, you know, the talking points that they brought with them, that they want to emphasize rather than answering the question that was asked. And, you know, the, the challenge for voters is when, you, you know, if one candidate is doing it and the other candidate is giving straight answers, then we can say, all right, I'm going to reward the candidate who's answering the question straightforwardly, even if they don't give the preferred answer that I want. But voters don't do that. Um, but we're, we're in the tougher situation of when neither candidate is answering the question, you really can't re reward either or punish one. either of them for, for doing it. So we're, we're kind of stuck. I, I try, I struggle with trying to understand why, how people that I know that are, you know, they're respected, they're intelligent people, um, can so adamantly support somebody who is blatantly lying about a lot of things, pretty much everything that comes out of his mouth. And this is the person that is effectively the face of the country to the world. Um, do you think it's because of the identity politics is so strong in some people that regardless of what factual information is presented to them, it, they're just that rigid and, and stuck in their way? Yeah, well, that's, that's certainly some of it. Um, if you look at the uh, Republican primary votes in the early states in 2016, uh, Donald Trump was getting about a third of the vote. So that's kind of his base, the people who either agreed with him on policy issues, particularly the immigration, trade, the things he was really emphasizing, or you know, really liked his anti-establishment, tough guy uh, political style. Um, then you had about uh, one third who, once he got the nomination, were of Republicans who were you know, indicating you know, some level of skepticism about him. Uh, and then you had the other third who I call potted plant Republicans that, you know, whatever Republican candidate is put, put before them, they'll vote for them, you know, regardless of the qualifications of, of the Democrat. Um, so they're kind of the identity politics people that, um, that you're, you're talking about, that 
um, the, their identity is subsumed by their partisan identity, right. you know, um, that re- regardless of the merits or level of corruption or whatever else of the candidate from their party, um, they view the other party as so unacceptable that, that they'll vote for anybody from their party rather than, than a qualified candidate from the other party. And it's not just the Republican thing. You know, the Democrats right. for many years had what were called yellow dog Democrats. You know, the saying was they vote for a yellow dog rather than a, a Republican. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so what happens in that situation is that um, voters kind of shift their criteria on which they, they evaluate candidates. So if, if you ask people kind of prior to an election, uh, what attributes of a candidate are, are important, I think they'd lead with, oh, the person should have good character, you know, or at the very least, they shouldn't be corrupt. Right. Um, but um, then once you throw partisanship in here, um, you say, well, okay, I, I agree with them on policy issues or they're, um, they're of my political party. So then we, in practice, end up, uh, prioritizing the values of he agrees with me rather than the, the values of this person has has good character. Um, an example of this um, during uh, George W. Bush's administration. Um, uh, initially, Republicans would say, yeah, we're, we're behind him because, um, you know, we, we like his leadership against terrorism. You know, he, he's taken it to Osama bin Laden. He's taken it to Saddam Hussein. Then the wars start to go poorly. So then they shifted their criteria for evaluating him. Well, no, it was no longer the war that kept him as supporting him. It was his, his character, was, you know, or, or the economy until the economy went bad. Well, then they shifted from the economy to, to character. So, you know, because there are multiple dimensions on which we can evaluate politicians, um, we shift evaluations to, to justify match the, support. The, the end outcome we want. And the, the challenge of partisanship is that we don't even notice that we're doing it. Um, it it's kind of a, a natural thing to do that, you know, we, we always have to be right. So we kind of find the outcome we want and then we cherry pick reasons <laughs> to justify it afterwards. Do you think that we should have a, I guess, a set of standards for presidential candidates? I mean, I, going back to when it was written where you really just had to be a U.S. citizen, a natural born citizen, and the age of 35. A lot's changed over the last 240, almost 250 years. Do you think that now is the time to kind of start putting a little more investment in who we have running for presidency? For the presidency? That's a fascinating idea. I, I think that'd be a, a really interesting discussion to have people hash through what qualifications they think we should uh, set from the outset. But yeah, if, if we could get people to agree to that um, and then enforce them <laughs> on themselves, right. um, that, 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 that'd be fantastic. I like that idea. Uh, it, and obviously everybody's going to have their own opinion as to what are the ideal things. But I think some of the things that people can agree on, regardless of what political side you fall on, and would hopefully not be reshoveled in their deck of priorities. You know, integrity is a big one. You know, at least a minutia 
of truthfulness. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people have become so frustrated with politics in well, general. I think part of it is that we've become so cynical about yes. politicians and politics in general that even if we know our candidate is you know, not telling us the whole truth or has character weaknesses, our assumption is that the other side is just as bad or even worse, and therefore we, don't, we have an excuse not to hold the candidate on our side accountable for their um, you know, clear deviations from, from the standards that we all have but you know, it gives us an excuse not to enforce it consistently when it's our side that's um, not meeting those standards. There's a lot of talk of this, you know, a peaceful transition if Trump loses. From your expertise and your knowledge base, what could happen if he decides not to do the "quote unquote" peaceful transition, providing he loses? I, I think that the key, if if Trump. Um, challenges the result of, of the election. Uh, the key to public legitimacy really depends on what other Republican leaders do. So if Mitch McConnell, uh, Kevin McCarthy stand up and, and say, you know, the election was held, the votes were counted, we lost, you know, we accept the results of the election and we urge our followers to, um, you know, unite, I think that goes a very long way in. Um, uh, helping us ease us through that, that transition, regardless of, of what Trump does. If, if the Republican Party plays along with him, and um, you know, particularly if the election is not particularly close, but they continue to say it's, it's fraudulent and dispute the results, then we have a much more serious problem and, and a big mess. Um, I, I, I am hopeful um, that the Republican Party leaders will be more forceful in that process than they have been uh, thus far during his presidency, just because I think much more is at, at risk, um, both in terms of the stability of, of the country, which I think they, they legitimately do want to serve in the best way they can, um, and in a more narrow sense, the, the, the brand of the Republican Party is, is at risk, um, and as party leaders, they have a responsibility to protect that that brand, not just for themselves, but for lots of other candidates who, who agree with them. Can I throw a hypothetical at you? Absolutely. Hypothetically, Biden wins, I think one number I saw he could potentially win is some 400 some odd electoral votes. So it's clearly decisive victory for Biden. Um, the Republicans agree that, yes, Trump clearly lost, but he refuses to leave office. What, I guess, are the possible ways of remedying him out of the office? I mean, there's there's an, an overwhelming, or at least there's a, a, a bubbling thought that he won't leave the office no matter what, and that there's too many people around him that will kind of not do what needs to be done to physically remove him from the office. I guess, what does the, the Constitution or, or what are our policies say about removing somebody who basically becomes an, a, a victim them out of the uh, Oval Office, so to speak? Yeah, the, there's not, no legal eviction procedures <laughs> in the Constitution or that's passed by Congress, um, you know, because we haven't 
fortunately had to have, you know, think about those, those rules, you know, that typically, uh, you know, the assumption has been that other leaders of their, so the, the model would, would probably be close to um, what happened during Watergate with, with Nixon, that the party, the Republican party leaders in, in Congress went down Pennsylvania Avenue, went to the White House and said, you know, you, you don't have the votes. <laughs> um, you know, if, if impeachment comes to the Senate, uh, you're going to be convicted and booted out of office. So um, do the right thing and, and resign. Uh, in this case, it would be, you know, Republican leaders go to him and say, um, you, you lost, it's, it's time to go. Um, you know, we, we don't want to call the, uh, the, the the FBI or the, the U.S. military in here to physically remove you. Um, you know, I, I suppose that would be the the, the option. I, I don't think either of them rightly would want to do that. But, uh, you know, the, the Constitution says we count the Electoral College votes uh, in January. So, you know, they're, they're going to be counted. That's the legal process. We're going to swear in the, the new president. Um, and somehow <laughs> the new president <laughs> is going to march down Pennsylvania Avenue and walk into the Oval Office and you can't be here. <laughs> So, um, shifting completely away from from the conversation we've been having, kind of delving more into you, what brought you into to studying politics and, and political science? Yeah, I was always interested in history and um, going through um, through high through middle school and high school. Um, so, always like that social sciencey kind of stuff. So, I always thought that. Um, well, I guess initially I thought I'd want to be a policeman. So <laughs> you and I have that, that in common. Uh, and then kind of as I got to high school, I thought, well, I, I, I probably want to be a lawyer because that seemed like that's what people who wanted to, um, you know, who, who liked history and social science aspired to, to, to be. Um, and then when I got to college, um, well, and I thought, you know, both my parents were teachers. My dad was an elementary school principal for uh, for 40 years, so I didn't think I wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> you know, and being a high school student myself, I, thought, I don't want to put a teacher through, you know, what we put our teachers through. But I, I got to college, and that was a very different environment than than, uh, than, than high school. And I thought, yeah, this is great. You know, I, I could really do this. I think this would be a whole lot more interesting than reading uh, you know, law books and doing patent law or defending people that I really thought were, were guilty. Um, so, you know, I kind of transitioned from taking the, um, the uh, uh, LSAT to, to taking the graduate record exam and, and going to grad school. Um, so, and then found that I, I liked research as well as teaching. So it's been a good fit for me. Got it. Uh, any sports when you were younger or? Currently? Uh, yeah, I, I played baseball through through high school. Was on our, our baseball team, so I, I grew up a New York Yankees fan because I was I grew up in Pennsylvania, so we were right on the edge of WPIX's broadcast range, and that's how you watch baseball <laughs> back <laughs> in the old days of uh, of uh, broadcast TV. Kind of going, seeing where things have gone and where you are now uh, educationally. Would you? ever transition to a different aspect of um, political science? You know, I'm maybe not even political science and teaching, but becoming a politician? 
Uh, no. <laughs> no, I've, uh, I, I worked in the House of Representatives for a little while, um, and, and I knew I didn't want to stay there. I knew I wanted to get back to, to teaching, but wanted the, the experience of doing it so I could talk about, you know, there's real-life examples with my students. But no, uh, running for office has never interested me. I have um, no interest in raising money. I, I hate asking people for even you know minor assistance, let alone asking them for, for money. Um, uh, I don't particularly care what other people's problems are. <laughs> you know, don't don't, don't want to. You know, that's what you're doing in politics. People come and tell you their their problems and. Um, you have to act like it's a priority that, that you solve them. And, uh, you know, I, I like to think I'm a compassionate person, um, but that's not something I, I do well. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely something that I ran into a lot as a, as a police officer. And you know, I, I welcome that. I wanted to be a cop since I was five years old. Um, one of my great uncles was a Pennsylvania State Trooper, and that was kind of my first interaction with a police officer and took me some time, but I, I finally got my, uh, my time on a police department and, and I love the job. Uh, unfortunately I had to retire for, uh, breathing issues. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a. I, I was fortunate in the place that I worked that was not a urban area where we were constantly running. It was more of the, you know, traffic things, some shoplifting, but nothing of the, the big heavy, victim crimes. Not saying we didn't have it, but um, I transitioned once I was retired. I decided I wanted to run for office because I enjoy helping people. I've been in EMT since I was 16, so I still continue to do that. It's it's my way of helping my community out, and I genuinely enjoy helping people, which is why I wanted to run for office because of all the problems that you know, we discussed this evening. and um, I tend to have this issue where I see a problem and I, I want to fix it and I kind of get frustrated if I can't fix it. But also I understand that if I can't fix it and I'm just going to kind of try and ignore it a little bit. Um, the Yeah, and, and, and that's a really frustrating aspect of being involved in politics that you have to learn to be patient because often things – are even if they're solvable are not solvable quickly right you know and building consensus as we talked about earlier among people who disagree or think they disagree more than actually they do is difficult and time consuming so it's um you know it, it really takes dedication to do it so that's why i i, I really uh, appreciate people who do put themselves forth for public service because it's a lot harder than many people assume that it is I think I, I would like to see a future where we can get back to being able to discuss things rationally, civilly, you know, we might disagree. We're going to disagree. People are, like we said before, have different perspectives on things. We need to be able to have those conversations and understand that we're not always going to come out on top and be okay with that. And I think that if we can get to a place where we can have conversations and, and the people that are in, positions of power or influence wield their words with responsibility and integrity and truthfulness, that'll do a lot to trickle down to the masses, so to speak. Uh, I kind of started to say before, I, I have a very big problem with people like politicians, um, athletes, and 
actors and, and, and famous people that it, people hang on their words. And when they use their platform disingenuously, it's, it's frustrating for me to, to listen to and, and buy that. I mean, you can have an idea. I mean, like there's, there's a, a notion out there that I've heard a few times that you can't support police officers right now because you know, all cops are bad. And obviously I'm a little biased because of my background, but I am a firm believer that law enforcement by and large are a group of good people. Are there bad officers? Absolutely. Do we need to do things to get them out? Absolutely. But there's a, a notion that you can't support law enforcement in general because of certain issues that have happened this year. And until we can start talking and, and acknowledge that you can support something without supporting it to the totality that some people perceive, perceive that you're supporting it. Um, I think it falls back on to, like I said before, being able to just talk rationally and not being so personally invested in the given topic and open-minded enough to, to take somebody else's feedback. Yeah, I, I think we always over-risk overgeneralizing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, my experience is that, you know, um, most pe people, the overwhelming number of people are good people. They want to do the right things. You know, obviously we all make mistakes sometimes. Sometimes we say things that we, we regret. Um, or, you know, if I had more time to think it through, <laughs> we'd rephrase it. Um, but, you know, that's an aspect of being patient with one another, being willing to, to be forgiving and, and compassionate. And I think that's where I talked about earlier, having experience in community organizations, um, you know, that helps us practice, um, you know, th those type of skills that hopefully then we can extend the skills to when we think about, you know, divisive public issues, we're willing to be a bit more generous with, um, with our fellow citizens. I think it it's, comes down to a little bit more of a open-mindedness to you know, sure. really be able to listen and not make assumptions on people. I think we do that far sure. too often is, you know, assume somebody is of some thought process and it's really not, I mean, give people a chance to talk and explain their, their point and their perspective to you and be willing to receive that. And you know, like you said before, either change or not change your position, but at least have an understanding of where they're coming from. Yeah, the, that's a great point. Cause typically when you talk to people, um, particularly when you, you follow up, uh, people usually have a lot more complex set of beliefs <laughs> than you might give them credit for or, or what they, you know, what they post on social media is kind of a, <laughs> a caricature of themselves. Right. Um, but when you actually talk to them, they're, uh, you know, they're, there's more nuance there and, and more to it than what meets the eye. Well, that's the, I think the key there is, is nuances. Everything in my experience and my belief is there are very few things in, in this life that are truly black and white. And there's an infinite shade, number of shades of gray. And you really need to be able to kind of step back from certain things and, and look at it from a broader perspective. And one of, the, one of the big things I took from law enforcement was, you know, the totality of the circumstances. And that's kind of taking that big broad view and then triaging and, and narrowing it down as you needed to. Um, but I've, uh, and, and, and being able to remember those times when you've made a mistake too. <laughs> right. And that's the, you know, that's another big thing is people forget that 
we're humans and, and people are, are fallible. And you, there's, there seems to be this theme of hyper criticizing people for their faults. And like you said, we realize people are people, humans are humans. Nobody is infallible. You know, I, I think we can maybe get along a little better. But uh, I've I've taken up just about an hour of your time, and I greatly appreciate the conversation. It was definitely uh, enlightening. Stay safe and healthy. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I appreciate the uh, the conversation. It was fun. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.